0: You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Does it all have to be financed within water? So does water something else does... could be paying for water. Yeah, I mean, it does here. It does in Europe. Water doesn't just finance itself. Most of the water utilities are subsidized.
1: Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Twist Water Podcast. How many broken hand pumps or how many broken tap stands or anything, that's almost not the important thing. What's important is, are people getting a service? And when that service breaks, how quickly can you get it up and running again? And that's actually led to fostering local enterprises to run rural water services and people pay for that service. There still needs to be some subsidy from somewhere, but it's like, how do you target those subsidies more effectively? I'm
2: your host, Antoine Voltaire, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Kirsten Dunnert and Sean Fury as my guests.
0: Groundwater is already very, very important. Groundwater point sources, that means wells, springs, boreholes, provide about half of the population. Of the subcontinent with their drinking water, water for domestic use. So groundwater is hugely important.
1: In a lot of places in Africa, there are, there are still untapped reserves of, of groundwater. And this goes against the general narrative that we're hearing. Shun is the director of the Rural Water Supply Network. Ah, uh, we could talk about wash technologies till the cows come home, couldn't we? The
0: need versus the financial capacity and the human capacity. The gap is huge. That was like major. That was really intense. That was it. That's roof.
1: roof. He's had a good (laughs) lunch now.
2: (laughs) Kirsten is the founder and director of Ask for Water. The last Super Bowl was held in the Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, a place that has a capacity of 65,000 people. If I elected to sit down every single person who's ever listened to this podcast in that stadium... I would need to rent it five days in a row, which is an achievement I'm incredibly proud of because water isn't exactly the kind of topic you'd place on the top of a coolness list. Now, three years ago, Xylem took that game to another level by teaming up with Manchester City and producing a video called The End of Football that raised awareness on the consequences of water scarcity. Remember how for all of my listeners, I'd need five Allegiant stadiums? Well, Xylem would have needed 30 of them for that video alone. But wait, I thought water is a boring topic. How can it get the attention of 30 stadiums full? Sure, one can argue that Xylem used some cheat codes, like releasing the video on Manchester City's channel, opening it with a 2045 Phil Foden acting as head coach, and so on and so on. Still impressive performance, absolutely unmatched for a while. Yet, that all changed in November last year when Mr Beast released his video where he's drilling 100 wells in Africa. There, no tricks, no superstar beyond Jimmy Donaldson himself, and just water, water scarcity, water access, water safety and water development for 10 minutes straight. To host all the people who watched that video, You would not need 5 or 30 Allegiant stadiums, no, you would need 2,400 of them. 2,400 stadiums! 155 million people that watched the video... 214,000 comments, all that for a water development project. Yes, I know, one view on a water related video doesn't one to one equate to someone becoming a water activist and joining the water sector to change the world. But still, first, as I'm recording this, Beast Philanthropy has raised $637,000 from that video alone to drill more wells, and second, That's a whole new bunch of people that have a bit more awareness about the water challenges we face. Now, water development is much more than what's shown in Mr. B's 10-minute summary, and much more than drilling wells and flying out. Water professionals like me may maybe have a remote idea of what it's like for real out there in the field, but even that is still a portion of the truth. Hence, I went to meet with two real specialists in the water development field in the offices of the Scat Foundation in St. Gallen, two highly skilled professionals who specifically look to support the 549 million people in the world lacking access to safe drinking water in rural areas, aka the people we see in MrBeast's video, to collect their best practices, advice, wisdom, return on experience, and points of attention, so that our five mighty stadiums full of water people get a better understanding of the do's and the don'ts of water development, and so that we have a bedrock to welcome the next stadium full of people who want to drill deeper into the water maze. Long intro, sorry, but remember if you like what you hear, take this episode and share it with a colleague, a friend, your boss or your team and I'll meet you on the other side. Sorry to interrupt again, this short host read to tell you that this could be your ad if we were to team up and become partners get your brand in front of an audience in 146 countries with the US, UK and Canada as the top three by the numbers, on a podcast channel that's been repeatedly sustainability number one in Israel, Singapore and the Baltics, in the top 10 in France and the Nordics, and almost continuously in the top 50 in the US, UK, or Australia. Wanna explore partnership options? Then reach out to Antoine at dww.show. The link is in the description and onto the podcast. Hi, Kirstin. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the show. Before we go into the depth of the topic, can we briefly introduce both of you? What is Asper Water?
0: Asper Water is my own um, very small one-woman consultancy company, a limited company, providing services for facilitation, training, evaluation, consulting for primarily rural water supplies in sub-Saharan Africa.
2: And if I'm right, you just came back from Uganda.
0: Yes, I did. I did. I lived in Uganda for a long time, half my lifetime ago. I lived there for 10 years, lived and weren't there for 10 years. I did my PhD research in Uganda and just carried on um, staying there until I came to Switzerland in 2008. And i go back as much as I can. So I just come back after from two months, two months in Uganda, which was really lovely.
2: Your major exposure to that water development project would be in Uganda?
0: We have now worked in another, I think about 15 countries, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. But the depth of understanding of the sector, I have more in Uganda than in the other countries that I've worked with.
2: Let's just introduce you, Shan. So you're here the local. Because we are in the offices of uh, the SCAT Foundation, where the Rural Water Supply Network is hosted or a part of it. How does all of that roll out?
1: SCAT Foundation is a small independent uh, Swiss NGO that focuses on knowledge management and networking and knowledge exchange in the field of development cooperation. We host uh, several networks, knowledge networks, of which our largest is the Rural Water Supply Network, which was... Um, co-founded by by Scat and UNICEF um, and others back in 1992 as the Hand Pump Technology Network, and has grown from a few hundred people um, with on um, very focused uh, on on hand pump technology to now over 15,000 members. Benefolds or what? What's there? They are uh, mostly. Um, a, Professionals, uh, mid-career professionals like project managers, engineers, working for government, for NGOs, for development organisations, for Private sector companies like drilling companies, whole mix, uh, university researchers. The majority of our members are in sub-Saharan Africa, either African or working it in, in Africa. But we're currently expanding into Asia and Pacific and into Latin America.
2: And what's your role as the director?
1: I'm kind of the uh, sex master, I guess. So RWSN doesn't exist as a legal entity. It really is a partnership. So we have an executive committee of now um, nine organizations including development banks, uh, UN, NGOs, uh, research, and then we have uh, another 12 or so theme leaders who are volunteers from a wide range of countries and organizations that volunteer their time to help run the network activities, which include things like webinars, peer-reviewed publications, events, training, all sorts of things. So really trying to bring together anyone who's working in uh, rural water supply in predominantly low and middle income countries to find the information that they need to be able to do their jobs better to find the people and 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 help that they need um, or offer their help and and services to others to really a real connection point the topic we'll
2: discuss today would have been of interest at anytime we've had on that channel several deep dives into sdg6 or looked differently the failure to achieve sdg6 and pushing back the topic since mar de plata 1977 it could have been a discussion at any time but in that context we have to explain that mr beast probably the largest youtuber by now in the world has published a video where he's drilling 100 wells in africa that video got about 150 million people to watch it, which is an unparalleled exposure for the topic itself, but which also drew a lot of reaction. There was the Kenyan government reacting and basically in a quite nasty fashion, they were activists putting out the, the, the racial aspect of it, white people having black people and so far and so on. I'm not, going into that today because I have absolutely no legitimacy to discuss those topics. What's interesting to me is I've reacted as a water professional, looking at what they were doing, but I'm by no means a specialist. So I thought I have to reach out to real specialists. And after that long introduction, I'd like to start with a very, 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 very simple question. There are 549 million people in rural areas which do not have access to water at all. Does drilling wells help them?
1: Generally, yes. For a lot of Places, it's the the safest available um, source of of water. Those people that where the figures are, it's like they don't have access to water. They do have access to water because otherwise they wouldn't survive. But it's it's unsafe. It's generally for surface water, so from from lakes, from ponds, maybe a bit of rainwater harvesting. The groundwater is found in many parts of the world, not everywhere. And in some areas, it's not suitable for all sorts of reasons, whether it's due to salinity, whether it's due to natural levels of high arsenic or fluoride, or whether it's due to pollution that's that's happened because of human activities or just salinity. I think a big uh, issue uh, in, a, in a lot of areas is that the water is, is, is brackish or it has high levels of iron and manganese or some chemicals that aren't necessarily harmful to health, but it's just not not great.
0: Groundwater is already very, very important. Groundwater point sources, that means wells, springs, boreholes, provide about half of the population of the, the subcontinent with their drinking water, water for domestic use. So groundwater is hugely important. But I think it's important when looking at you know these over a half a half a million people without access to drinking water to look at the context and not to run away with This is a technology for everyone. So to really be quite context specific and think, okay, so in this particular context, how can we bring up the access to to safe water for everybody? And drilling boreholes is certainly an important part of that picture. When
2: I say look at the context, what is the size of the context we're discussing? Is it like a country, a region, or is it like very, very local?
0: We live in the time of the nation state. So it's very important for the government of that nation state to look at what's relevant for the country. But um, it needs to be smaller than that, you know, whether kind of a Canton level or Gemeinde level be in Switzerland, district level or sub-county in Uganda, to really look at the needs and What's possible in those specific areas? I've just come back from Uganda, where one of the districts, Jigegewa District, has I think it's the second lowest coverage in the country, slightly over thirty percent of people who have access to safe source of drinking water. That has to be looked at as a district and as a subcomponent. Why is it so difficult, and what can be done, and what are people doing already? So you need to look at the, at the nation national level, but also at the very local level, and ultimately particularly if you're looking at community-based water sources, it's the community that's very, very important. How are they going to pay for it? How are they going to manage it? How are they connected to others providing support? So it's a whole set of levels that need to be
1: considered. A lot of Places in Africa, there are there are still untapped reserves of of groundwater, and this goes against the general narrative that we're hearing. And this is the, the the challenge of communicating on the on these issues because a lot of the agencies that are working in groundwater globally are trying to make the case that groundwater is under threat; it's being overabstracted, it's being being polluted, and that's absolutely correct for most of the world, but not. in in a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, where there is still a lot of potential. But even within that, there's nuance in the fact that the researchers were looking, for example, at the aquifers that supply Addis Ababa in uh, in Ethiopia, and finding that the the groundwater levels there are declining drastically. There's localized pockets of over-abstraction. You rapidly skimmed over the water quality. If I
2: look from a European eye, in Switzerland, in France, in the UK, in Germany, you would not in most of the cases, drill a hole, take out the water and drink it. You would always have a neutral or a UV disinfection or at least a chlorination. There would be some kind of treatment. If you're super lucky because Switzerland has some pristine waters, that treatment might be very limited. If you're a bit less lucky, that treatment can be very, very intensive. Is it realistic to say that you can, if you take one of these districts where 30% of the people have access to water today, that the other 70% could get it from groundwater without treatment, you just dig a hole and and you pump?
1: Earlier in my career, when I worked for the Environment Agency in the UK um, in water resources regulation, I would say that the the big issue in with European groundwater um, is just the level of agriculture over many many decades, and the use of so many different different chemicals means that yeah, it's probably not safe to use the groundwater. Directly in because of soil pollution, because of because of pollution over a very long period of time in areas which don't have that level of uh, agricultural intensity, you should always have the water quality tested, and this is part of another research project that we're involved in, f- funded by USAID, called Real Water, which is looking at how to. St- to support water quality testing labs in countries like Ghana in Kenya in Uganda in Tanzania so that when a borehole is drilled the services are there to get the water quality tested to a, to a good standard so people can say yes that that is that is safe not just once off when when the borehole is drilled but on a routine basis and that kind of feeds into the the broader way that water needs to be managed and and, and regulated
2: are we touching here on what might be the limitation of the approach where you come in, bore a hole, and there's water. It means you have to think what you just said, which is water quality needs to be monitored, and then probably additional steps. But how often do you see people which come with the best intentions in the world dig a hole, take out water, there's water, and then the quality is not monitored? It's like standard that now it is. Always monitored, more or less, in all the new projects, or is it still a battle you have to fight?
0: It very much depends on the governance in a particular country. Before any organization comes into a country, they have to be allowed to come in. And there should be certain standards that they have to meet. For example, if the organization is installing hand pumps, is it a standardized hand pump in the country? Is this a hand pump where there are spares available, which is you know accepted in the country? Who's going to drill? Is that drilling company licensed? Is there a licensing system? Is there a mechanism for making sure that drillers are following certain quality standards? Is there proper supervision? And... An organisation coming in, I mean, you can come in randomly, like going to the moon and drill boreholes in this community and that community. But how are they selected? How are they chosen? And where's the follow-ups? And this really comes back to, to in-country governance, both at the national level and at the local level. In many contexts, an organisation coming in externally, from 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 outside the country, or even a local registered NGO, non-governmental organization, would have an agreement with the local government to be able to operate in that local government authority. And there's certain conditions around which they operate. Because of course, if somebody externally chooses the community, what does that mean for, for governance? All countries want to raise access to drinking water. So the collaboration between the government. And whichever entity is coming in is extremely important in terms of coordination, in terms of standards, in terms of what needs to be tested. No organisation should be working in in isolation, actually. And if they are, there's, I would say, a problem either with the organisation or there's some issue around governance or something's not working.
1: Time is such an important factor here. So a scout foundation project that we uh, have at the moment is in moldova building um, water systems in moldova and uh, and sanitation systems yes it's been building hardware but it's also been around working with the government's local national governments and supporting them and their institutions and following their rules this is a country that became independent in the early 1990s as a, as a Soviet satellite. And they've had to go on a real journey from this very centralized Soviet communist approach through sort of a kind of community management. And we're seeing this very similar stories uh, in countries all over the world.
2: That government's aspect i like to understand with what you just said about centralized going to decentralize and what you say about should, which is not must. You said NGOs and drilling organizations should coordinate with governments is that wishful thinking or do you still have lone rangers out there which go out and do stuff
0: Yeah i used the word should i probably should have used the word must actually i mean it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, in trying to, to work within a context, it doesn't make sense from somebody from the outside just to come in and randomly drill a borehole. It makes sense if it's very clear from the start. Where are they going to drill? Why is that community selected? I mean, even if there are other issues and, and political pressures. These are sovereign states. This is not the moon.
2: I just have a devil's advocate question on that one, which is, if I go back to my Marlott Plata thing, which is, it's been 50 years that we're saying we have to solve that problem this decade. And 50 years of solving into the decade, you know that there's a problem somewhere. Do local communities which don't have access to water still trust governments to provide them water
0: yeah i think that's it's just too much of a general (laughs) question sorry talking about africa talking about 54 different countries and never mind how things are within their countries i'm honestly not even
2: speaking about africa i I followed the u.n water conference Mm. in, in march this year stood up the whole night to watch all of it and to me that was eye opening about the inability of international organizations to 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 cover that topic so that's yeah. My personal opinion, yeah. I came out of these three days devastated. It was like, that was all for nothing. The entire build up to the conference, I had a conversation with Mina Gulli, how she was running all these marathons to, to raise the awareness about all these people and saying, we have to do it by 2030. And then you see what's happening in this international sphere, and you see, that's not going to solve the problem. So, international to me is something personally I lost any trust
0: Oh, but I was still
2: believe in countries.
0: Certainly in my work in many countries, mainly in sub-Saharan Africa, I have met incredibly committed people working at local government level, trying their best. They may have limited resources. In a district may only have money for five new water sources in a year or 10 or 20. The need versus the financial Capacity and the human capacity—the gap is huge. So certainly, from from the many professionals working for government, and I've interacted with a lot of government professionals, both at national level and local level. There's a lot of very committed people trying very hard in difficult circumstances. I'm not saying everyone's an angel, but I think it's really important not to kind of tar government with a blanket. Rush. That's just not fair.
2: I'd like to come back to something you said in the, in the beginning of, of your previous answer, which is about the pumps, which are now listed. And I remember how I looked at it and said, Oh, that looks kind of familiar. And you said it's the exact model. It's the India. It's in India Mark II. Yeah, India. Yeah. So I guess that shows how I'm a mogul. You're the specialist. <laughs> if I understand right what you just said, that is now a problem from the past. Because when I discussed with David Lloyd Owen on the podcast he mentioned how there's 150,000 abandoned pumps in africa and he was referring to a study by pump 8 and actually pump 8 updated their figures and they now estimate that it's 300 abandoned pumps in africa and one of the reasons is that if that pump was funded by us ed us ed would ask for that pump to be built in america because america helps america and then america helps the world but that stopped in the 90s and from what i get now from what you're saying that is all history and so we should not see these broken hand pumps anymore.
0: Let's talk about the spectrum of what goes wrong and what's right with hand pumps. Mm-hmm. You have a hand pump that is installed on a properly designed well-constructed borehole and it's a high quality hand pump. okay that's one. You may have a borehole that's not been well constructed. there's a whole lots of things that can be done badly with a borehole, which makes it difficult for that hand pump to work well. You may also have a hand pump which isn't of the specifications that should be. Poor quality materials, parts that break, wear very quickly. You also have hand pumps where it's the wrong material in the wrong type of water, aggressive water, and they corrode very quickly. So all those pumps that are not, pumps and boreholes that are not installed of high quality, all of those categories, their performance will slip quite quickly. And some of them may become abandoned if the communities are not able to to maintain that, so you have a whole set of pumps and boreholes that perform poorly and may stop working over one or two years. That's generally a quality, a construction quality, technical quality issue. That's one. Mm-hmm. Now, two, you also have the pump. It's the borehole is well constructed. The pump is, you know, adhering to specifications. But there are challenges of maintaining that pump over time. So something fails and the community may or may not be able to fix that problem. And that depends on whether there are hand pump mechanics around who understand, who can remove it, who can diagnose the problem. It depends on the availability of the spare parts. So, for example, I've done some work in... Northern Bahar El Ghazal in South Sudan, and huge issue of lack of spare parts availability. So communities actually, they're very determined to keep their pumps working, and trying all sorts of local, you know, tying inner tube around broken pipes, putting it back in the hole to keep their pumps working. Yeah, and then of course you have issues of finance because if something breaks, usually it's the community's responsibility to raise the funding. Are they able to do that? How big is the problem that they can fix? Is there trust within the community? Or is there some support from outside to help them work in a, in a good way? Or if it's a big problem that they can't fix, a figure of abandoned hand pumps that has so many nuances underneath it. You know, was it a problem at the beginning? Is it something that's just been very difficult for that community to maintain? for a number of reasons.
1: How many broken hand pumps or how many broken tap stands or anything? That's almost not the important thing. What's important is are people getting a service and when that service breaks, how quickly can you get it up and running again? So this uptime principle. And that's actually led to fostering uh, local enterprises to run rural water services and people uh, pay for that service there, there still needs to be some subsidy from somewhere. That's part of the research findings, is that you can't just expect... Um... Uh, a rural Kenyan village to cover the entire costs of their of their water system, just as they don't here or in, in most parts of the world. But it's like, how do you target those those subsidies more effectively? Because a recent World Bank uh, r- report on subsidies in water found that it's actually the more the richer people, the richer households that benefit from subsidies, not not the poorer. The poorer you are, the more you pay for water. There's a, a report that came out recently. Showing that post Second World War, it was, it was very government sort of top-down approaches that in many countries didn't work very well. In the 1980s and 90s, that moved very much to community management, putting the responsibility on the households and the, and, and the communities to look after and pay for the, their own their own systems. Where we're transitioning to now is yeah a much more patchwork approach, much more nuanced approach of what works best in different areas. So for example, in very remote households will never be reached by a water utility. So therefore, it's about self-supply. It's about how do you support uh, rural households to invest in their own water source that is safe. What you were talking about in terms of your disenchantment at the international level is that something like water supply it shouldn't be an international issue it shouldn't be an aid issue it's a it's a local it's a local service where we try and work at the global level is that where we see that there is a need in that there are so many great experiences from all over the world both good and bad and people learn from each other
2: you mentioned several times both of you the 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 financial aspect of things. Is that the major roadblocker or is there other stuff to sort before that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Kazan might have a different view on on this, but (laughs) certainly the discussions that I have with the development banks, so these are big institutions like the World Bank, African Development Bank, and so forth, they can mobilize resources. in in the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, in some cases, of of dollars for financing national programs. The challenge is often the capacity of the governments and the institutions to use that money effectively. About 10 years ago, we were working together in Liberia, and that was was an eye-opener. The money was there for Liberia, From various donors, but there, there was just there, there weren't the institutions, there weren't the skilled people, and this was at a national level, at local government level. I mean, we actually never could find out what. capacity there wasn't.
2: So, so there was government. fuel for the engine but no
1: transmission to the wheel. Yeah, 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 I think so. In that in that in that case.
0: I would say there's three things. One and this is from a conversation I had with a wonderful colleague of mine in Uganda um a few weeks ago. One is organization, organizing and that's around people and systems. Finance I think really is an issue. And the other issue is corruption.
2: And number 2 being linked to number 3 or not at all?
0: They're all all three. Are interlinked.
2: You mentioned how it's expensive to be poor, and actually that is the main thesis of Gary White and Matt Damon's book, The Worth of Water, in which they outline how there's this coping cost of not having access to basic water and sanitation, which they estimate at 300 billion per year. So that's the cost of the situation we're in. On the other hand, when we look at how much it would cost to finance SDG 6, it's about 116 billion dollars per year. If you do simple wideboard calculation, it costs the word $300 billion to be in the situation we're in, and it would cost the world 114 to solve the, 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 so it's a no-brainer. Economically speaking, spend 114 and you save 300 so people have much better lives and you save money. I look at that, to me, problem solved. I can't be the only one to do that calculation. <laughs> and if it was so simple, it would be solved by now.
1: Yeah, so about 10 years ago, I was working in integrated water management in the UK, and they're quite an innovation in the UK at the time to really look at water supply, wastewater, nature conservation, all the different aspects of water for one town in Kent. When you look to overall, there were some no-brainer decisions. In terms of overall, this is the the right thing to do in terms of like wastewater treatment or, or managing flood risk. The problem was was that the people who paid were not the people that benefited. So what you're saying in that calculation is probably broadly correct. But in terms of the winners and losers within those numbers, the incentives probably aren't lined up because some people will be asked to pay more. And they'll go, well, what's in it for me? Or that's not in my mandate. This is another thing dealing with government and other organizations is that you have all these discussions and they'll go, that's not my job. Absolutely. No, that, that ab- makes absolutely sense. But I don't have the mandate to do that.
2: I had a conversation with George Macro from Dig Dip, and he was calling that the wrong pocket symptom. At the end of the day, it's the same body. But if it comes out from the right pocket and it goes into the left pocket, then right pocket will feel like... Why is it my pocket which is taken? When
0: you just look at the water issues alone, it's a no-brainer. However, there are also other issues which are important and which people may see as more important. People living in, certainly in, in, in African countries, I would argue rural Populations don't have a lot of political voice. I mean, here there are lobby groups of farmers in Switzerland that that have, you know, that have organized. It comes back to organization. They've organized themselves. But we're talking about people who live in remote areas, okay now with telecommunications are much more connected than they were before, but people where there's lack of electricity, for example or road infrastructure is very poor and so governments both at national level and at local level have to take decisions because their resources are limited. What do they focus on? Do they focus on roads? Do they focus on schools? What about healthcare facilities? And then you have also many countries with huge increases in population I mean the Uganda population has more or less doubled in 25 years, so there's a challenge of keeping up with population with infrastructure so decisions are taken about where to invest at a political level both nationally and also internationally what do the development banks want to fund you know what are the trends climate change finances is a big focus at the moment, you know, is that going to help? Is that going to distract water? But you stand here sitting with somebody looking at primary education, that is the key issue. Sit with somebody looking at Mm -hmm. that. So these are all huge demands. So the decision of what to fund is a political decision at the end of the day. And linked to that, there's also inflationary things that need to be considered, you know, from an economic perspective, if you invest an awful lot in a particular area that has an inflationary impact. And that's why, these targets and these this twenty, thirty target is hugely important to mobilize action, but in practice it's going to take much longer. It's complex and highly politicized.
1: Yeah, but what's great about the SDGs as a framework, it is that it's a framework. Challenge then becomes around yeah, the prioritization. And in rural water you can see it in two kind of different ways. One is that as a public service it's a utility bill that you pay and so therefore it's a burden on the household every day every month or whatever they've got to find cash in their pocket to to pay for 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 drinking water or you look at water from a flip that and say water is actually an income generator if a household or group of households has a secure water supply they can use for, for growing growing food, for growing fodder crops, for livestock watering, for artisanal economic activities, it becomes less of uh, a burden on the state that's, that, that's got to be paid and more of a, an income generator. The trouble is, is that then then you're kind of getting out of the nice vertical integration of like the water supply as a, as a utility and you're getting more into multifunctional stuff. And multifunctional stuff delivers multiple benefits, but is much less easy to measure in terms of like, if we put in this money here, we will deliver that impact there doesn't always create the right incentives. I have one
2: comment and, and two questions on that. The, the first comment is you mentioned the increase in population. I have to be fair to what I said about my disenchantment on international organizations. If you look at the millennium development goals, they brought access to water. I think it was MDG 7 to 1.8 billion people. But the world's population between 2000 and 2015 increased by 1.8 billion as well. So they ended up at a zero, net zero in terms of number of people who still don't have access to water, but in absolute terms, <laughs> 1.8 billion people got access to water. So not implying that they do nothing. It's just that, yeah, you have to cope with the demographics. You mentioned SDG as a framework. When I sat down with John Robinson from Mazarin Ventures, who was looking at it from a different perspective, but what he's saying is that he's not investing in any business which would look at SDG 6, because that's not the right way to get water. He's investing in business which look at SDG, I'm gonna have the numbers wrong, but two, three, like end poverty, uh, no hunger, better health access, because it says if you want to end poverty, then people need to have water as a creator of wealth. Exactly what you said. If you want people to end hunger, then you will need to grow crops and growing crops requires water. So that's going to be solve the access for water by itself. So are we wrong by focusing on water? And should we just focus on all the other ones and think that water is the byproduct?
0: The SDGs are global Political commitment. Political. Sounds also, like
1: a key word. I'm, I'm getting that. Yeah, one. <laughs> it, it's
0: a global political commitment by all the countries who have signed up to, to the SDGs. There's also human rights. The human rights to water and sanitation is a legal obligation. And within the the, the human rights, let's let's focus on water. Within the human rights to, to to water, there are you know a set of kind of underlying attributes in terms of safety, in terms of accessibility, etc to kind of just talk about water for business i wonder if it can undermine the human right to, to safe drinking water not everybody is a business person and within a community there will be people who are have disability issues who are particularly poor you may you know you have all people you have all sorts of groups within a society and by just focusing on water for business, for those who are capable of business, is that really going to trickle down to water for everyone? Access to safe water is a human right and a legal obligation. So let's really make sure that when we're looking at water, we're not just thinking of one aspect, but we're thinking of both. We're thinking of the business aspect, but we're also thinking of every single person in that community having access. And I struggle to believe that only focusing on water as a business opportunity can deliver that. I question that.
2: On that human right topic, if I'm right, the exact phrasing is there's a right to affordable water and the word affordable implies that that water doesn't come for free. So it's an economical good. I get your point that not everybody is a business person. But if you don't take into account this this cost of water and this value of water, then you're doomed to never be able to finance that water pays water scheme.
0: But does it all have to be financed within water? So does something water else does? could be paying for water? Yeah, I mean, it does here. It does in Europe. Water doesn't just finance itself. Most of the water utilities are subsidized, whether it's major maintenance in the West.
2: I- I'm French. In France, we have this rule of water pays for water. I'm, I'm a water engineer trained to, mm. to that dogma. So water pays for water and it has to. And it creates debate because people believe question, with arguments I, I, that the first 50 liters shall be free.
0: And how many years mm-hmm. and how many years of infrastructure were paid for before that came into being? That's, you know, that's another question.
2: The, 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 the problem—that's uh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. we're <laughs> like, oh, we're off script. Now, <laughs> yeah. which is good. The problem is is rather on the horizon because that was the rule forever. But the result of that is that now we're renewing the infrastructure at a 0.5 percent renewal rate every year. So we assume infrastructure will last 200 years which it will not. So at some point, you will have a problem. To which the counter argument is to say, just raise the price of water and you cover that. But that's Europe for Europe. (laughs) But honestly, and the reason why I was sitting down with George Macro from Deep Deep is that he's looking at people who don't have access to water in the United States. And it's 2 million people Mm. in the wealthiest country in the world. When we think of 2.2 2.2 billion people would not have access to water. That's abstract because it's a huge number and huge mm. numbers. We don't grasp those huge numbers. That's a full sidetrack. I don't want to take you all <laughs> to that one. I'm coming back to what you mentioned about what I would maybe simplifying grassroots level in going at that granular level where governments or large organizations will have their struggles to to trickle down up to that level that's where i find the approach from water.org super interesting with their water credit, because they have this uh, no questions asked water loans so they're loaning money to the poorest people on earth without any background check just because they're financing these access to water and they get a payback rate on their loans of 99 percent without any background check and with people which are really the poorest people on the earth. They estimate that by now they've helped 50 million people to gain access to water, which would make me think, but that's really just my gut feeling. They're probably the single organization which have access to most people to water as we speak. Is there a limit to that approach? If you give more money to more micro banking organization, which will give more micro credits in the Mohamed Yunus Nobel Prize approach, would that solve it?
1: I've known and spoken to Water.org for over over many years. My understanding is is that they're they're mainly working in urban, peri urban areas, and with institutions that work in those areas. So that taps into a broader issue of like when you're getting into rural access to financial services, because I believe water.org don't lend directly, they... They They lend
2: to organisations that lend... lend. Yeah, they support
1: lenders. Urban areas are much more in the cash economy. I would be interested to see if and how that could be adapted to rural just because a lot of incomes are seasonal or barter, they're not necessarily in the cash economy. So how that would work with microfinance. But to be honest, I don't know enough of the detail of this area. It is an interesting approach because that's a harder sell. I guess it helps when you have a Hollywood actor doing the selling.
2: It's one of the, the, the points, actually, in, in the TED Talk of David Denberger, which you, you shared mm-hmm. to me, there's a lot of things inside that TED Talk. But one of them is he's showing how in development water, the power is with the donor. And the donor wants to see that exact picture you were referring to, which he calls in, its, in his TED Talk, that picture is a lie of someone standing next to the pump having water. And if donors want to fund that, and you don't have Matt Damon to convince them to fund something else, then maybe that Mr. Bliss video is a benediction because now 150 million people got a bit of interest into the topic. So now we could double down on that and say, now that we have your attention, here's what we should be funding. And it might be partially drilling wells, But it might be the quality we discussed, it might be the organization, it might be bringing the structure and and all the other aspects. How do you bring that message across?
0: I wish I knew the answer. (laughs) If I knew the answer, I I would have done it. It's just trying to help people understand that it's not a simple tick answer and just helping people I think to to appreciate that water is, the provision of domestic water and drinking water is much more than drilling that borehole there's a whole set of things that happen before that and there's a whole set of things that happen after that, so it's Helping people to see that this, what they're seeing in in this this video, is one event of something which is actually much longer and much deeper. So it's like a point in a box.
2: But is money clever enough to understand that?
0: In the donor world, um, there's much more nuance of understanding. Definitely. If you look at what different donors, NGOs are funding, there are organisations who are just worrying about the post-construction. They're just thinking, okay, so who can keep supporting those communities? How do we make sure that mechanics can fix the pump? How do we make sure that communities are contributing enough? How do we get some subsidies in? There are organisations, donors focusing on that. There are also others thinking about the regulatory context. There are others thinking about groundwater resources, monitoring and management and understanding the resource. So, you know, how much can we drill? How clean as the water. It's very nuanced. Not everybody is, thank goodness, not everybody is focusing on that bit.
1: When we talk about donors, we need to acknowledge that there's a broad range here, from small family foundations, all the way up to the big multilaterals that were mentioned earlier with into the hundreds of millions. One of the things that we've seen is the importance of research, good quality research, to inform programming. So we are seeing that, that there is a shift in in how aid donors are, are moving. And likewise with this USAID program, they were asking these questions of how can we as the United States um, change how we do aid to, so that it's not uh, about just broken hardware in the bush, but it is about really supporting targeted interventions that just change incentives. And a lot of this comes down to having skilled individuals. So just like education training skills throughout, we just need this pipeline of talent. That's why we've got this really successful mentoring scheme of connecting young young people that are really passionate about water and really want to do something and sort of matchmaking to a six month, a nine-month journey together and learn where they want to go, where do they see themselves fitting? Or maybe they might conclude, actually, this was really great, but I'm going to do something else. I I don't see my role in in where I thought it was.
2: I'm delighted to take your word on finance and money getting more clever. I just have a Dev's advocate question, which you can wash off it's, it's, if it's, if you believe that thing is sorted into the story of the past. It's just an example from two of my former guests on this podcast, which have very diverging opinions. One is from Source Global. So, Source Global is a company which is doing atmospheric water generation with uh, hydro panels, which are solar panels. So, it's fully off grid. You can install it to wherever you want. That's one part of the story. The second part of the story is Christopher Gassum. He's the CEO of Global Water Intelligence. And one of his most famous editorials is that he did an editorial on Source Global saying it's the most egregious waste of money. Because actually Source Global has been two years in a row the most funded water company in the world. To be the most funded once is incredible. To be twice and two years in a row. And they're backed by Jeff Bezos, Jack Ma, Bill Gates, what they offer as a value proposition is that you're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the bushes in Australia, in the middle of Native American reserves, or in the middle of Sub-Saharan Africa. We install a panel and you get water, a bit of water. It's the most expensive water in the world, but it's something which people can invest in. Don't want to take sides on source of global globalization, so let me couple it with a second question. There is a a program on French TV, which is the French adaptation of Shark Tank, where investors can invest into uh, entrepreneurs. Last year, there was a special episode where they brought in all the sharks because the guy presenting was presenting a plastic sphere where you would put whatever water inside that sphere, water would evaporate, distillate, trickle down, and you would get drinking water. And they sold that as a way to cover all the water needs in Sub-Saharan Africa. And they sold it as solve all the water problems when in fact you're solving maybe one or two liters a day and it's just a distillation of water. There's nothing outlandish. They were asking for 500,000. They got a million, So they raised a million on that TV show because that saves water. So my point is maybe there is clever money But there's still a lot of appeal to, not talking of source, talking of the second one, of snake oil.
1: Ah, we could talk about wash technologies till the cows come home, couldn't we? I think that's kind of where we both started out. So just SCAT, the acronym originally, so SCAT was founded in 1978 as the Swiss Centre of Appropriate Technology. So this was uh, part of the smallest Beautiful movement it was really focused on, rather than just like importing tractors, modern tractors into Africa and then breaking down, you know, can can something be co-created with it in the countries that fits the context? Technology is, is incredibly appealing, but the more you get into it, the more you kind of drift away from the technology itself and realize it's everything we've been talking about in terms of governance, in terms of incentives, just supply chains, the quality control. It's that classic thing of pilots never fail and never scale. You know, there are so many great ideas that pilot well and then just... Oh. You know, that valley of death also sweeps up some, some some bad ideas. Before I hand over to Kirsten though, just on the uh, the air one, because I did my undergraduate and my um, master's thesis on fog water harvesting based on the work done in the Atacama Desert. With the nets? With or- the nets, yeah. Because in 1996, I went to Namibia as a young science leader and I and I wanted to study the climate of the Namib Desert to see if it was fog water harvesting technology could be applied in the Namib Desert.
0: My PhD looked at innovation diffusion and I'm really interested in technology and it's exciting to see new innovations. It's also exciting to see innovations that are non-technological, for example the UpGrow consortium which is trying to different ways of making sure that systems are maintained so I'm really interested in innovation but I think it's always important to think you know who is benefiting is this going to benefit few people here and there is this really going to have a widespread impact how much money is coming in and where is that money going who is being paid for it's perhaps doing good for a few people but what about everybody else and this human rights everybody has to to save drinking water. So those are some of the questions I have. So if an organisation comes up with a technical solution and is fundraising for it, is it putting its account in the public domain? Do, are we seeing who is benefiting financially from that? And that applies not just to the private sector, but also to the charity sector, the NGO sector. It may be a corruption issue, but it also may be who's benefiting most from this. So there's a lot of noise can be made about innovations, but who's actually who is the real beneficiaries? And is that bringing up everybody's access to safe water?
2: I could be spending the day discussing <laughs> that matter with, with you. I will come to, to the last section because I need to be cautious of your time of, of that deep dive where I have two remaining questions. The first is super simple question, super difficult answer for you, I guess. <laughs> what are three do's and three don'ts of a water development project?
0: How does it fit within the local context and there's a whole set of aspects about planning it's about the environment it's about the users it's about the local governance it's about other agencies so the fit and are people really thinking about the fit or are they drilling a borehole on the moon two is the quality the quality of the implementation and that means the quality of the preparation for before that source is constructed the quality of the drilling, let's say it's a whole, the quality of the infrastructure, really ensuring that that quality is, is considered. And the third aspect is the longevity. And that relates to a whole set of issues, including monitoring the resources over time, looking at spare parts, looking at how it's managed, looking at how it needs to, when it needs to be replaced. So that would be my quick, the fit, the quality and the longevity.
1: So that's the do's. and what's about the don? Of course, on fresh for the do's. <laughs> do's. Uh, investing in people, um, because I think people are as much of the legacy of a good program and good intervention as the as the the visible hardware yeah. itself. And then linked to that, I think is trust. It's it's a word that's not mentioned very much, but it's just like building trust is absolutely critical to everything social capital comes back to this people thing so this we're getting well beyond water because any kind of development uh, is is around cohesion talented people incentivized to do to do the right thing
2: your three do's would be the people the structure to support the people and the trust yeah what about the don'ts? i
0: mean i would say don't work in isolation don't sprinkle pepper around focus and um, don't think that you know everything So that they they all have like do's, you know, work, don't work in isolation, work with others. Don't pay perfect, you know, focus and spend time. Don't think you know everything, but listen, really engage.
1: Probably don't think that you're the first person to come up with that idea, whatever your idea is. (laughs) Do some really do the research that's the flip side of that um don't don't stretch it it's it's okay i think we have lots of
2: do's and don'ts Mm -hmm. far more than what i would have dreamed of so so thanks thanks for that i have a closing question what's your now subjective feeling about it is it good news that the biggest youtuber on the planet does a video about that, gets the same traction he usually gets with his stuff where people have to avoid breaking a laser and and can earn $1 million, because that's the usual content on his channel. So he gets similar numbers, the water topic so is that a pure positive or is the limited narrative in a 13 minute videos so i'm giving him the credit that he probably teamed up with the people who made him do all the steps you just explained both of you uh to, to during the past hour but the fact that he just highlighted the part where you drill a well water explosion people standing next to it yeah. is yes carrying on the right message what dominates in you right now
1: i would say that i overall it's a good thing that it's reaching a large number of people, probably a younger generation that are not maybe aware of clean water is even a thing. From that point, I think it's uh, it's good and that hopefully it will trigger some people, a good number of people to find out more and then explore and, and hopefully not be turned off. The style of communication is is important because if cynicism creeps in if you've googled a bit superficially and this all seems very fake then the cynicism sets in and we're going backwards i think you're always going to get those sort of people but i think hopefully there will be enough people that see it get inspired do proper research and find these different organizations that have been a longer track record and go ah okay this is something i I'd like to get more involved in it. Just
2: before letting you answer, question, just to react on what you just said, I can testify of that. My commentary video to his own video was watched over the past three weeks where it was published for over 500 hours. I have videos which have made more views in absolute views, so I can't predict the future. I don't know how that one will behave, but none of them captivated the people for that long. View, which uh, means okay. people watch the Mr. Beast video and then they have, not all of them, not 147 million of them think that way, but they watch it and think, oh, there must be more to it. Let me dig deeper. And so the next step might be my video or others, which, which came out. And hopefully the next step, once they scratch the surface with that, w- will be our conversation today, which is now that we understand there's more to it, what are the people which are actively working that field for for, for, for all this time? What are they doing and what are the do's and the don'ts? And so I would hope that it's like a funnel. And even if we lose people at all the stages of the funnel, we now have 150 millions, which are on the top of that funnel. That will trickle down more people down that funnel. That was my... Very personal opinion on that. Let you give you yours. I mean, he's clearly done something. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here
0: talking to you. So he's he's done something. I don't want to judge yet. It's for me. It's too early. Uh, just a bit like when you drill that borehole. It's too early to know whether it's going to last because that takes time. He's done. He's clearly had an impact. He's drilled a borehole, <laughs> for want of a better word. So it's kind of let's see what others do, but also. What he may or may not want to do, you know. I mean, if he's so influential, is he prepared to think about the nuances and bring that to an audience, or is this now the role of the rest of us to, to do? So, um, for me, the jury's still out.
2: That's a no-sum awesome conclusion for that deep dive. Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> it's time for the rapid fire questions. <laughs> The first one, I think you partially answered already, is what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Is that that project you mentioned where- Liberia one. Yeah, you have jokers anytime. <laughs> I'm
0: gonna talk about the Liberia work because I learned an awful lot during that. It really brought home to me the importance and power of individual capacity and of confidence. So when I talk to people about what I do, which is quite hard to explain because it's so diverse. It's one area, but I do lots of different things. I actually bring that example quite a lot, you know, just trying to show with a project where we were developing a report with, I think it was 10 different departments and in different ministries working together um, just what you can do by raising skills and yeah raising confidence and supporting the interaction so that's definitely one of my top projects
1: For me it's right now it's knowledge brokering it's the role that we play as a network to take the latest of cutting edge academic and implementation research for the real water program the reach program and connecting that to the actors that need and are wanting evidence so that they can their interventions are more evidence-based
2: can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way
0: when i started my phd research in uganda i learned the hard way about making sure that people don't lose face in public you know how criticizing people in front of others i really learned a lot about that, and that was that was hard.
1: I think I learned uh, that I shouldn't be a field engineer building rural water systems, <laughs> and that was in Guatemala in in the late 90s, feeling like a like a third wheel because I was with these fantastic people that were just like digging trenches, like nobody's business, putting pipes in. The local chief engineer w- would sort of ask me for stuff, uh, and I'd be like. I don't know I've just done a few kind of hydrological, hi- hydraulic calculations and things. It was a great experience, but I was the beneficiary of that project, not them.
2: Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in ten years?
1: Right now, it's interesting. I know it's it, it's a cliche right now, but AI. You know, the, the AI is really interesting. A lot of these fads, like drones and blockchain and all this kind of stuff, you just go, yeah, yeah, whatever. Three D printing that we're all going to change the world and haven't really. But I think what we're seeing with a lot of these AI tools are some real opportunities to change how we do what I've been talking about in terms of knowledge brokering, maybe in terms of online training, because the scale of what we're trying to do. In Rural Water Supply, we're talking about a service for half the world's population. In RWSN, the RWSN Sectariat is four of us, and three of them are working part-time. We're tiny. AI isn't... An enabler. An enabler. Gives us superpowers in terms of the ability. We're already using it with tools like Deeple or whatever for for translation. Fortunately, I'm in a multilingual team that are able to check the quality, but it just allows us to do things in other languages uh, so much more, more quickly um, and efficiently. Uh, but we're exploring with partners how to develop quality control tools in this so that people can get good quality advice. Because if we don't, people will be going to ChatGPT and these other tools and asking them, how do I design a reward system? And they'll be getting shonky answers. So it's almost a responsibility for us to work with partners to develop a, a good quality tool that's drawing on a good quality set of reviewed information. So that it is providing reliable information. But if we're if we're able to do that, then instead of having fifteen thousand members, we should have one hundred fifty thousand more, you know, subscribers, users of our of our kind of platform, because that's the minimum of scale that we we need to. To do but there just isn't the the funding to do that and that's not going to change any time soon so super interesting. So mine is really pragmatic.
0: Um I've been leading and co-leading the theme within the Rural Water Supply Network called the Sustainable Groundwater Development Theme. I've been doing that for 18 years. I started doing it when I still lived in Uganda and I'm stepping down at the end of this year 2024. So I will not be doing that for another 10, never mind 18 years. So that's my very pragmatic response to that question
2: i have one which is totally not in my usual list which i'm serving <laughs> to anyone but i'm just drawing on that exact question none of you told me i'm out of a job in 10 years but if the entire world gets access to water and wastewater by 2030 which is in less than 10 years you should be out of a job in 10 years
1: no because right now rwsn and rural water supply in low middle income countries is defined within the aid world what i'd like to see is that we're no longer In the aid world, we're a professional association of rural water professionals around the world. And that will always be there because as long as there is a service there and there are people needing water, there needs to be professionals to support that service. No, I don't see ourselves putting ourselves out of the job. I see ourselves changing the job. I love that perspective. So I'm I'm happy that you you came up with a clever
2: answer to my silly question.
0: (laughs) I also think I'll still have a job, partly because quite a big proportion of what I do is kind of research related and even if people have access to water i think there will always be need to look at certain elements of improving services of looking again at some of those who may have been who remain left behind so i think there'll still be plenty to learn in not only 10 years but 30 40 50 years i don't think i'll be that old
2: Two for questions question remaining the first one is what do you want people watching or listening to this what do you want them to do right now.
1: Uh, Join the Royal Water Supply Network. Which they can do on the Uh, Scat Foundation's website? On the RWSN website, which is rural-watersupply.net. So the link is in the description check it out
0: if they're interested in the topic just to keep finding out a bit more about it and to talk to others yeah. You know, about yeah start thinking discussing arguing about this issue and let's have that as one of the topics we talk about alongside climate change alongside all sorts of
2: other and if topics. they are alone which, which was one of your don't don't do it alone where do you advise them to go and find those peers to, to talk
0: with talk to your friends talk to your neighbour I mean if, if you're not in the water sector but are interested in this topic talk to other people about it the rural water network is a great place to find lots of documentation Google talk think discuss but if you're on your own go knock on a neighbour's door and ask them for a cup of
2: tea or of course subscribe <laughs> to that channel I, that was my, my plug I was asking for for yeah that. Honest answer, yeah. and then I can have my dishonest answer, which is subscribe. That's a funny one, actually.
0: That's amazing. Nice it
2: was a blast having that <laughs> conversation with, with the two of you. Like, I, that, was I, like, me. that was
0: like major, that was like really intense. Yeah, that was
2: it? lunch If people want to follow up with you, where is the best place for me to redirect them? You mentioned the RWSN
1: website, is yeah. there another one? Uh or Foundation. ch yeah
2: so to to follow up with my two guests you can just check the show notes everything is in there thanks a lot and i hope to talk with you in the future
1: great thank you
2: great
0: thanks a lot
2: thanks for listening to don't waste water this podcast was brought to you by gf piping systems loved this episode head over to apple Podcasts to subscribe rate and leave a review see you next time